0: Let me introduce to you our guest speaker. We're honored to have with us Dr. Heath Lambert. Dr. Lambert serves as Executive Director at the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors. ACBC is the largest biblical counseling organization in the world with certified counselors and counseling training centers in 17 countries. Many of you may not know this. We're one of those training centers. We also have 20 certified biblical counselors that have been certified through the organization Dr. Lambert directs. Dr. Lambert is in his first full year directing this ministry, and we're very grateful, Heath, for the leadership you've brought. We're we're excited to see how God uses you with this ministry. He is the Associate Professor of Biblical Counseling at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and their undergraduate institution, Boyce College, where he has taught classes on biblical counseling and Christian ministry since 2006. He also serves as the Associate Dean for Applied Studies and the Chairman of the Department of Biblical Counseling at Boyce. Dr. Lambert is also a founding council board member of the Biblical Counseling Coalition. He serves on the editorial boards of the Journal of Family Ministry and the Journal of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Dr. Lambert is a frequent conference speaker and has written numerous scholarly articles for various academic journals. He is the author or editor of several books including The Biblical Counseling Movement After Adams, Counseling the Hard Cases, True Stories Illustrating the Sufficiency of God's Resources in Scripture, and his latest resource, finally free, fighting for purity in the, with the power of God's grace. All these books can be purchased in our resource center. Heath is an engaging author, but also an engaging speaker. What I have appreciated in both reading Heath's work and listening to him is a consistent message of grace and power, and love for people, and even more so, a great love for his God. I've had the privilege of hearing him speak at an ACBC conference, and what stands out to me is his passion. For God's word and his passion to see people living to the glory of God. He is married to Lauren and they have three children Carson, Chloe, and Connor. In all this, he loves the local church, which is why he's carved out time to be with us this morning. Would you help me in welcoming Dr. Heath Lambert?
1: Good morning. It is uh, good to be here with you today. Let me ask you, if you would, to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. While you're turning there, I want to uh, say something to you about your church, which uh, either you know it or you don't, and uh, either way, I want to tell you it, whether for the first time or to to remind you uh, that you have a great church. Uh, so i can I can say that since i don 't go to church here. Um, I can also say that you have great leadership here at this church um, they didn 't pay me to do that uh, to say that i 'm just telling you that 's the way it is um, i uh, I get to travel around to a lot of different places and speak in a lot of different churches. I get to have relationships with pastors of a lot of different. Congregations, even all over the world, and I'm telling you that grace is a special place. Um, and just the the three of your pastors that I that I had some relationship with before I showed up here today um, was uh, Brad Bigney. I've known him for years. Uh, Bob Greenwood, Ken Long. These are godly men who love you and want to serve you. Brad Bigney is the most encouraging man I know. Uh, my wife knows him to be the most encouraging man I know. The staff at ACBC know him to be that. I get these notes from him regularly that let me know that he was praying for me that morning. And he was praying these words and the verses scrawled out with words circled and arrows drawn to like (laughs) praying this for you. And I'm like, goodness gracious, I don't know how he does it. But, But I am so thankful for him and for his leadership Uh, of this church and for his care for you. And I want you to know that that is true. He's asked me to speak about the church and psychology, which is a huge topic. And in fact, I'll give you a plug. the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors has an annual conference every year about a different topic and in a different location. This year, this October, uh, October 6th, 7th, and 8th, I think, it's or 5th, 6th, and 7th, the dates, I get confused. But It's the first Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday of October, uh, and it's in Southern California this year at Grace Community Church um, there in the Los Angeles area. And we are going to spend three days elaborating on this topic that I'm going to speak about for a few minutes uh, this morning. We've got uh, uh, our annual conference, which is called The Gospel and Mental Illness, and we want to talk about what the gospel of Jesus Christ has to say about the hard problems that many in our culture experience, which get addressed typically by secular psychology. And we want to talk about what the Bible and the gospel has to say about that. Uh, During that same conference, we're also going to have a pre-conference called Counseling and Medical Issues, where we want to help the church understand from various medical doctors who are certified with our organization, how do you understand medical issues as they come up in Counseling? Uh, We're really honored to have a great lineup of speakers for this event. We've got, as I mentioned, several different medical doctors who are going to give us their expertise uh, as they combine both their medical knowledge and their counseling experience. Uh, We have David Pallison, who's the executive director of CCEF, who's going to be speaking to us. Uh, We also have John MacArthur, who is the pastor of Grace Community Church, who's going to be sharing with us a couple of times. So really encourage you. You might think you can't... uh, You can't go to Southern California, but just think how chilly it's going to be getting here in (laughs) October, all right? And you could go for three days to Southern California, and actually we just saw on, uh, we just were looking at Southwest in our office, and I think for like 300 bucks or so you can get out there. So word to the wise, the uh, warmth and fellowship of Southern California is beckoning you if you want to uh, hear more about this uh, topic. Ephesians 4 will be our text just for the few minutes that we've got today, though. And in Ephesians 4, this is what God says, beginning in verse 11. And he, Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, Into Christ. Let's pray. Father, we appear before you in your presence right now as people in need of great grace. Father, I confess that I am a man in need of great grace. My sins and my weaknesses keep me from you. If I don't have a redeemer. And so father, thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you that he takes sinful, broken, weak people and ushers us into your presence. Father, I pray for me that you would help me to say good and true things about your word. Things that would build up your church. And Father, I pray for this church, that as we sit together underneath your word this morning, that they would hear things that would challenge them and that would beckon them to be more like Christ. Father, we want to be different. We want to be more godly. We want to know the Bible more. We want to be more useful in the kingdom. We want to resemble Jesus more closely, and we confess we can't do that without your grace. And so, Father, I pray for your spirit now to come and to take this word and to fix it in our hearts and to make us different than we were when we came in. And, Father, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, I am supposed to talk about the church and psychology, um, which is uh, not going to be one of the more frequent topics addressed in churches across the country this year. So you can be assured you're getting something relatively unique here. Um, The church and psychology. If you are going to understand the relationship of the church to psychology, there's a few historical realities that you have to understand. And so let me tell you a quick story or two to kind of summarize the last couple thousand years or so, all right? For 1900 years... If you had a problem, if you were overwhelmingly sad, if you had a family issue, uh, if you were thinking of killing yourself, if your kids were dramatically disobedient, if you had any of those sort of life problems, there was one place you could go and one person to whom you could speak, and that was the village church and your village pastor, If for 1,900 years you had a problem, the place people went for their problems was the church. It was understood that the church was that place where people went when they had these kinds of problems that required counseling. It was understood that a pastor if he was going to be any kind of pastor at all, could not just preach, but he had to be equipped to help people with the problems they were experiencing in their life, which is why, you see, when you look at really, really old Christian books that are like hundreds of years old, you discover that many of these books are written in the field of what gets called pastoral theology or practical theology. It's it's books about how to help people with their problems that was the case for almost 2 millennia and then at the end of the 1900s excuse me at the end of the 1800s early part of the 1900s uh, you have an event happening called the psychological revolution And this is where the discipline of psychology, which had previously been understood as a discipline of philosophy, which nobody really paid much attention to, started to get a lot of steam and a lot of people started to pay attention to it. And the single most important person that brought life and vigor to psychology was a man you'll recognize named Sigmund Freud. And Sigmund Freud, when you, when you read about Sigmund Freud, if you took an intro to psych class in college or in high school, Freud gets linked with words that you just would like to forget if you ever had to memorize them for an exam. I mean, id and ego and superego and unconscious and subconscious. And what you need to understand is that none of that is what makes Sigmund Freud most important anywhere, but particularly for our purposes today. What makes Sigmund Freud so important, particularly for us today, is what his mission was, which he made clear in his own words. In 1926, shortly before his death of oral cancer, Uh, Sigmund Freud wrote a book called The Question of Lay Analysis, and it's not regarded as one of his more important books, but it's a book where he is very honest about what he was hoping to do. If you understand Sigmund Freud, you know that he was an atheist. He was not the biggest fan of God, and he was annoyed and troubled by this reality that I just explained to you. He didn't like that if you had a problem, you had to go talk to some Christian about it. He didn't like that the church was the place where troubled people went. And so Sigmund Freud is very obvious and honest in a couple of places, but the question of lay analysis in particular, that he wanted to change all of that. And what he says in the question of lay analysis, he said, what we should try to create is a class of people that he called, this is his language, secular pastoral workers. That's what he wanted to create. A class of people called secular pastoral workers. Now let that sink in for a minute. The word counseling, which we use a lot today, was not a common term a hundred or so years ago. So Freud didn't use that language. He used the language of pastor. He used the language of pastoral work. That is, talking to people about their problems was so equated with what pastors do, it was called pastoral work. And Freud said, we need people who do that, but they're secular. We want people who do what pastors do that don't believe the Bible and don't force you to choke on Jesus Christ. That's what we need. Now, you've got to hand it to Sigmund Freud. He was remarkably successful. He was, I mean right here, right now, it looks like he kind of was victorious. I mean, in late 1800s, early 1900s, he was advocating the novel position that if you've got problems, you should go to somebody other than a pastor. And now a humongous portion of my ministry is going around saying, if you've got problems, you should go to your pastor. It's it's a complete reversal from 100 years ago. So the old boy was remarkably successful in what he did. Here's what that means. It means that when it comes to helping people with their problems, the church and psychology have been in conflict with one another. The church didn't start it. The church was going along doing their deal and Sigmund Freud came along and says, no, not that, we need secular pastoral workers. So for the most part, psychology and the church have been in conflict ever since then. Now here's a really important thing you need to understand. That reality does not mean that the church is against everything that psychologists do. Psychologists can have very meaningful and valuable work. So if you think about psychiatry, where medical doctors are doing medical work on the brain and uh, the uh, the neurological system. Uh, if you think about psychologists doing empirical research where they're making observations and just saying what they see, all of those are areas in the work of observation that are helpful. And Christians should never deny facts simply because they come from a secular psychological researcher. The problem happens when secular psychologists start to help people with their problems. And so how do you move from good and true observations that are often accurate, not always, but often accurate, and even psychologists know they're not accurate 100% of the time and they're debating among themselves about where they're right and where they're wrong. But how do you move from observations for which we should be thankful to help for which we should be suspicious. Well, you make that leap because nobody ever just makes simple observations. You always understand what you're looking at. You always try to make sense of it. You have an interpretive lens that you use when you look at what you see. And when it comes to people, everybody, when they observe people and try to help, they have an understanding of three things. They have an understanding of what's wrong with this person. They have an understanding of what ought to be right with this person. And they have some understanding of how you get from what is wrong to what is right. Well... The most important thing about that interpretation, about understanding what's wrong, understanding what's supposed to be right, and understanding how you move from one to the other, God has his own understanding of what is wrong with you and me. And God has his own understanding of what is supposed to be right with you and me. And God has an explicit process which he details in the Bible about how we get from what's wrong to what is right. And if you are a secular psychologist, you up front do not admit that that's true. From the very beginning, a secular, secular psychologist says, we don't care what God says. We don't. We don't believe and we don't care what God thinks is wrong, what God thinks ought to be right, and what God says about how we move from one to the other. And so, up front, secular psychologists, because they deny that God gets a vote, they will always misunderstand what they see, and so will always give improper help that is competing with what the church ought to be doing. And that's where we get. To Ephesians 4.15. See, God has his own understanding of what's wrong with us. God says we're sinners. In the immediate context of Ephesians 4, that sin is talked about as immaturity. We're immature little kids. In the broader context of Ephesians, we interpret that immaturity as sin. So in Ephesians chapter 2, it says we've, uh, we're all dead and our trespasses and sins. God understands our problem to be fundamentally that we're immature sinners. Everybody who comes to counseling is a sinner. Their own personal sin might not have been the thing that brought them to counseling for that visit. It might have been the sin of somebody else or it might have been the existence of sin in a fallen world where we get diabetes and cancer and all the rest. But secular psychologists, by definition, deny the existence of sin. They don't see the problem. And so they can't help. If there is one main thing wrong with every single person and you don't see it, you're irrelevant. And they don't see it because they don't see reality. God says what's wrong with us is that we're immature sinners. God says what ought to be right with us is that we look like Jesus Christ. He says that we need to grow up to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ in verse 13. In verse 15, he says we need to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. God looks at each and every one of us, each and every person in the whole world, and he says, you know what you need? You're an immature sinner, and you need to grow up and look like Jesus Christ. Healthy humanness, if you will, is defined by a man who is the son of God, who is the redeemer of the universe. And secular psychologists are blind to it. They would laugh at the idea that Jesus Christ is what each and every person ought to look at, ought to look like. The goal is to grow up, not grow up like get a job, not grow up, move out of your parents' house, not grow up and be old enough to vote. It's grow up and look like The son of God. Where is the secular psychologist that sees that? If we are supposed to look like... If what being human fundamentally means you look like Christ... And the people who are assigned to help you don't know that... They are irrelevant. God sees what's wrong with us. And he says we're immature sinners. He says the goal is that you grow up and look like Jesus Christ... And then he talks about this process. How do you get from one to the other? He says in verse 15, "Rather, speaking the truth in love, we grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ." How do we get to look like Jesus? In Ephesians 4:15. This is fascinating. In Ephesians 4:15, you do not get to look like Jesus by listening to good preaching. So I'm for preaching. I'm doing it now. I hope you don't say okay, and start updating your Facebook. Um, so we're for preaching. But it's just not what leads to maturity in Ephesians 4.15. That's other passages of the Bible. Ephesians 4.15 does not say you get to look like Jesus by having your own personal Bible study and reading good books. Those things are, are important. We are for those, but that's not what Ephesians 4 says. Ephesians 4 does not say the way you get up into Jesus is by praying fervently. It's important, but that's not what this verse says. Ephesians 4.15 says that if you want to grow up into Christ, you've got to have a conversation. You've got to talk to one another. You have to, if you will, counsel one another maturity growing up into Jesus Christ in Ephesians 4:15 requires counseling one another that is defined by two realities. The first reality that defines the conversation that leads to maturity in Ephesians 4:15 is that you speak the truth. There is no way to get people to grow up into Christ, into maturity by saying things to them that are not true. And the second defining reality of the counseling conversation that happens in Ephesians 4.15 is that it has to be a loving conversation. There's no way to get people to grow up into Christ in this kind of conversation by being mean. The counseling conversation that we're having with one another that leads us to the maturity that is Jesus is when we speak words to one another that are honest and loving. We speak wise and loving words to one another to grow up into Jesus Christ. I don't care what degree you've got in psychology. I don't care how much experience you have in psychology. If you don't see that, then you don't understand reality. And the only way you can see it is not by taking a class at a university. It's not by getting enough experience. It's not by reading a book unless it's God's word. God's word is the place you have to go to figure that out. Secular psychologists don't understand it. And so it creates conflict because there is a legitimate disagreement about what is wrong with people and how to help them. And I don't want to just talk about this in abstractions. I want to, I want to give you an actual example of what this looks like. I, I have the opportunity to know a lot of secular psychologists. I read a ton by secular psychologists. Um, uh, and I want to just give you an example of a counseling session with a secular psychologist who does not understand reality. Because th- this is important because we tend to think that... Uh, Psychologists are the people who know stuff about us that we don't know. Okay? I mean, if, if you need help, the psychologist understands things about you that you can't even understand about yourself. And fascinating, mysterious things will happen in counseling that will fix you. And so one of the things that I do, in fact, I teach a class at the seminary uh, where we just do nothing but read case studies from secular people and see that there's nothing really special happening in secular psychology. It's just people with an understanding about what's wrong, which is incorrect, and they have an understanding about what ought to be right, which is incorrect, and they use an incorrect process to make the change. And so I want to give you, I'm not going to pick a marginal situation. I'm going to, I want to give you an example from one of the most famous and reputable psychologists that's alive today. His name is Peter Kramer. Some of you will have heard of him. Uh, he is a best-selling author. He wrote the best-selling book, Listening to Prozac, which was massively influential. He has, uh, he's a medical doctor from Harvard Medical School. Um, he's written a number of books, he has a thriving counseling practice, he's a sought-after convention speaker, he is one of the most influential psychologists alive today. So I'm not picking some bozo off in a corner somewhere, all right? Peter Kramer wrote a book several years ago called Moments of Engagement, where he describes from his perspective what the counseling task ought to look like. And he tells numerous stories in this book where he's commending to you what you ought to do in counseling. And in that book, uh, Dr. Kramer tells a story of a counseling case that he had. And he identifies the couple as Wendy and Rick. He met Wendy first. Wendy came into his office. He describes her as a stunning uh, woman. And she was suicidal. She was seriously contemplating ending her life. And as he talked to her, he... Found out why she wanted to die. And she explained, he explained what the most significant issues that led to that were. Um, Wendy and her husband Rick had uh, gotten married and uh, they were living the dream. They made a bunch of money, Uh, they had a thrilling life together. They would travel and spend time together, Um, a passionate, romantic relationship. Everything was going great, and then Wendy got pregnant. And Wendy gave birth to twin girls. And life changed, as it is wont to do. Um, And now Wendy was tied to the house, she was tied to those little girls. She wasn't, as Rick referred to her, sexually adventurous anymore. And so Rick started living his own other life. He started selling drugs. He started selling drugs because he wanted to earn money to take numerous trips to Las Vegas every year. So he would save up money from selling drugs. He would go to Vegas, gamble all the money away, and fly back. And start selling drugs to save up money for the next trip. He would do this several times a year. He began to hang out in singles bars. And Wendy felt alone Neglected and unloved. Because she was, by the way. She goes to Dr. Kramer and she says, what do I do? And he says, Wendy, I can't help you if Rick doesn't come for counseling. So Wendy and Rick agree to come to counseling. And here is Dr. Kramer's solution. I'm not making this up. Right? So you just keep remembering, best-selling author, sought-after speaker, M.D., highly trained, and this is what he says, Wendy, Rick's right, you're not adventurous enough anymore, and so here's what you need to do, you guys are both going to Vegas, all right, and when you go to Vegas, Wendy, you have to lose at least as much money as Rick loses, And here's another thing he said. He also said, Wendy, you have to get a sexy dress. And you have to walk around the casino and flirt with other men. And they said, okay. And they did it. And this is how Dr. Kramer summarizes how it went. He says, if anything, the intervention was too effective. Wendy flourished so dramatically that I began to fear for the marriage. (laughs) Over a year after treatment stopped, Rick called me complaining that Wendy wanted to leave him. She had begun to sit in with a band that played singles bars and Rick began to spend evenings at home taking care of the girls. He was now even more involved with drugs than in the past. He showed up once or twice, but he never really turned into a patient and my last impression of the couple was that they were about to divorce. Whether this outcome is desirable in a couple's treatment of this sort is hard to say. In individual therapy, we congratulate ourselves when a wife manages to leave a neglectful husband. In family therapy, we tend more to wonder whether the marriage couldn't have worked out after all. But whether successful or not, most of the cure lay in our one crafted instruction, go to Vegas and lose money. Brothers and sisters, go to Vegas and lose money? I mean, you got, you got best-selling books and degrees from one of the most prestigious institutions in the whole world? And your best advice to a married couple is go to Vegas and lose money? we shouldn't beat up on peter kramer peter kramer's lost as he can be i don't ex- i mean if peter in fact if peter kramer in this book said i told them they needed to repent of their sins and trust jesus well i'd be stunned and be overwhelmed i mean lost people act like lost people save people act like save people i'm not shocked that peter kramer says what he says i'm shocked that the church thinks that's the place to go for help that's what shocks me Uh, This is just one of the saddest things you've ever heard, if you're paying attention. This man was given authority to help, and he used his authority to trash a family. Because he doesn't understand reality. He doesn't understand who people are. He doesn't understand what marriage is. He doesn't understand speaking the truth in love. He just doesn't get it. And that's why we need to be the people who do understand this. This is an urgent matter because, listen, I'm just telling you, Wendy and Rick are in this church. I mean, you're, you're here in this room. Wendy and Rick were in the first service, and they'll be in the third service. Not all the same details, but there are people in this room that are wondering if their marriage is going to make it. There are people that live On this street, Gunpowder Road, which by the way is the best name for a road I've ever heard. (laughs) I couldn't believe that when I got the email about the address. But there's there's people that live on Gunpowder Road. And they're Wendy and Rick. And they think that the answer to their problems are in psychology. And they're not. They're in this room. This is a matter of urgent concern because we got people in here and there are people out there who need help. And they don't understand where to find life and hope and help. And so here's the thing. If you, if you leave here today and you think, wow, uh, the church and psychology are in conflict because uh, psychology doesn't understand the truth. um. I will feel like I have been a failure this morning. So it's not enough that we know that there's some conflict. As thankful as we are for the good work of psychology and their true observations, as their help gets filtered through their false interpretations, we need to be suspicious of that. But it's not enough to understand that this morning. What we have to be able to do is be the people who know how to help. Not not just to understand that we could help or that we should help, but that we know how to help. And so what I want to do is ask you to think in three areas where you might change this morning. And they come right out of Ephesians 4.15. Some of you need to grow. If you're going to help the Wendy's and the Ricks of the world. If, if this is going to be a better place than Peter Kramer's office then some of you need to grow in your ability to speak the truth. So some of you, some of you are just too nice to tell the truth, all right? You see the way your best friends have conflict in their marriage right in front of you. You see the way he mistreats his wife. You see the way she mistreats her husband. You see the way they let their kids get away with murder. But you don't bring that up because you just, uh, I don't want to be offensive. I want to be kind, polite. That's private. And that's, their, that's their life. And we'll just let them live it. Well, you think you're being kind. But you're really just being an arrogant person who cares more about your reputation and being liked than you do about speaking true words into people who need to change. Listen, we've all got blind spots, all right? We've all got places where we need to be different. And I know I've got them and I would change them, except they're blind spots. So I can't see them. So if you don't come up to me and say, Heath, you're blowing it here, then I don't see it. It's it's not nice to not tell people about a problem. I mean, try being an oncologist that can't stand to say you have cancer. I mean, negative information is not mean if it's a correct diagnosis. Some of you need to change and grow in your ability to be truth speakers. Some of you need to change and grow in your ability to speak in a loving way. So this is, this is the opposite end of the continuum. Um, some of you need to change and grow in your ability to be kind and loving. Because you just heard what I was saying over there and you don't get it. Because you know the truth. You know it. And you're just thrilled. Thrilled. To let that married couple know what's going on. And in fact, if they would just listen to you for five minutes, that's all you need. You will set them straight. But that's not enough. It's not enough to know the truth. It's not enough to speak the truth. The first church where I was a pastor, uh, I was out in the church office area speaking with the church secretary. And the church secretary's daughter was there that afternoon talking to her mom. And some uh, elderly ladies from uh, one of the Sunday school classes came into the office, and they had, uh, if you're not, if you don't have any Southern Baptist connections, this, the joy of this moment will be lost on you, but um, the, uh, this elderly lady's Sunday school class called the joy class, anybody know what I'm talking about? Okay, maybe some of you do. Um, Joy class in Southern Baptist churches, this is a must-have, Okay. And uh, they came in, and they had just completed decorating their Sunday school bulletin board for Christmas. So if, if such an announcement could be accompanied by trumpet fanfare, it would be, all right? So these ladies come in, and they are stoked, and they want me to see what they have done to the bulletin board for Christmas. So we go down on parade, the office staff, and we get down there, and they show us the bulletin board decked out with christmas trees and snowballs and everything else and listen i'm just be shooting straight with you i mean if you were going to have a bulletin board in your house um you would not decorate this bulletin board for christmas the way these ladies did but they tried their hardest and it it was what it was well the ringleader the sunday school teacher said uh what do you think And, um, and before anybody could say anything, the secretary's daughter said, I think it's ugly. <laughs> Your reaction was not their reaction. All right. <laughs> and everybody kind of looked at this young woman and she said, I just call it like I see it. And I looked back at her and I said, that's not a virtue. (laughs) And I'm telling you, God bless you for laughing, but there was no laughter (laughs) in the hallway that November, all right? It just wasn't, it was was tense and dramatic. But do you know what? That's right. When you read Ephesians 4.15, being a truth speaker on its own is not a virtue. There's no virtue in just discharging truth. What God commands is that you speak truthful content and you do it in a loving way. And some of you need to change here. Some of you think just because you know the truth and you're willing to share the truth that that makes whatever you say okay. And you're disobedient to God's word the same way people who are nervous about sharing the truth are. Some of you need to grow and change in your ability to speak the truth. Some of you need to grow and change in your ability to speak in a loving way. And then others of you, a third category, need to grow in your ability to listen to truth spoken in love. So some of you have a reputation. The reputation of the person who, if you say wise and loving words to them, you're going to get in trouble. You're going to get hollered at, or you're going to get frozen out, or they'll sit there and smile and nod, but then they never do anything. They never change. Some of you need to change in that area. And Jesus will help you. So everybody... Everybody fits into one of those categories or some combination of them. And Jesus wants to change us all. All of us need to go before the Lord Jesus Christ and confess areas in those three categories where we have fallen short. And ask Jesus for his grace to grow in each one of those areas. And I'm telling you, this is a matter of urgent concern. Because this is the church's calling I want you to understand we're the only people who know what's wrong with Wendy and Rick. We're the only ones. The the MDs and the psychologists from Harvard and Yale and Princeton and UCLA, they don't get it. And I could tell you a lot more stories of a lot more trashed marriages besides just Wendy and Rick. And so we have to be the people who know how to do this, and who know how to do it well. And there's all kinds of things that we need to do to grow in that area. But the thing that God's Word tells us this morning is we need to grow in our ability to speak the truth. We need to grow in our ability to speak in a loving way. We need to grow in our ability to listen to that truth so that we can all together grow up into Jesus Christ. I'm so thankful for psychology and their good and true observations. When they're right, they can often be helpful. But every time it comes to ministry and helping people with their problems, I'm telling you, they'll always be wrong. Because they don't see that the goal of life is to look like Jesus Christ. And we do. And so with great urgency, let me appeal to you. Uh, to point the Wendy's and the Ricks of the world to Jesus Christ and to do that by speaking the truth in a loving way. Let's pray for Jesus' grace to do it. Father in heaven, we want to ask you for your grace to be a light shining in a dark place, in a world that looks to psychology to help and understand the problems that people have. Father, I pray that grace would be a church and there'd be many other churches that would be characterized by the knowledge that people need Jesus Christ to be different. People need to grow from being immature sinners to resembling the Savior of the world. And so, Father, would you help us by your grace to have us increasingly be characterized by people who are headed towards Jesus and are doing that by speaking true words, are doing that by speaking those true words in a loving way and are listening when we hear those wise and loving words. Would you do it in the name of Jesus and for his sake? Amen.